Hello, welcome to Pod Academy. This podcast is an edited version of an interview first aired on the New Books Network. It looks at how very exposed we all are in the digital age. And rather than identifying digital surveillance as the key issue, it highlights our apparent willingness to be digitally exposed. John Walls, Director of Strategy at global marketing agency VML, talks to Bernard Harcourt, Professor of Law at Columbia University, about his recent book, Exposed, Desire and Disobedience in the Digital Age. Through each digital interaction, we expose ourselves, not just to those in our personal and professional networks, but to the companies whose technology we use and the government authorities whose classified programs monitor those technologies. Harcourt calls this phenomenon the expository society. Comparing it to classic societies from literature and political theory, Harcourt makes an argument that the expository society is different from George Orwell's 1984, historical notions of the surveillance state, and Jeremy Bentham's famous panopticon. Like those societies, the expository society takes away our freedoms, reconfigures our political relations, and reshapes our notions of what it means to be an individual. Unlike those societies, we willingly expose ourselves to technology that feeds our desires rather than suppresses them. For Harcourt, we surrender our human privacy for consumer convenience, and despite misgivings, we don't raise many objections. Exposed would like us to raise a few more. Bernard and I talk about why we haven't and how we can. Who is the audience for this book? Everyone. I don't view our contemporary space as being divided between the surveilled and the surveillers, but being as a complete space where we are, all of us, kind of negotiating all of these spaces at the same time. This is a world that we are so immersed in that it's almost as if we are so embedded in this world that we almost don't see it. And it's in that sense that I wanted to, I wanted to immediately kind of capture that, this idea that every click can be known, that everything we do can be known in a way that it's never been the case before. Walking across campus, across Columbia campus, is just the most amazing phenomenon. Everybody is glued to a device, right? Whether it's a smartphone, i.e., you know, an iPhone or whatever, or a tablet, or a laptop, or an, um, an air, or whatever it is. There's, it's just, you walk through the quad, and it is literally everyone is glued to and kind of embedded in uh, the digital realm. It fundamentally changes the way we exist as political subjects um, and as contemporary subjects and as social subjects. So it fundamentally alters. And, 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 you know, oftentimes there are these debates in theory about, well, what's the, you know, what's the role of technology and things like that. But I think we're past that kind of simple question because it's not just a technological change, but it's a radical change in terms of social interactions, political interactions, um, and relations of power. By exposing ourselves on our devices, 
uh, all the time and, and leaving these digital traces that, that Google and, and Amazon and all of the retailers that we use and all of the, and all of the social media and all of the platforms and just the fact that you've got apps on your iPhone say mean that your Facebook can capture everything that's going on on those other apps and feed advertisements, et cetera. So that fact renders us malleably shapeable through advertising and through kind of recommendations that are constantly coming our way, right? It turns us into subjects who can be shaped deeply at all moments, um, because all of these moments, we are on our phones or on social media or on our computers or Googling or searching or whatever, whatever. We are receiving recommendations as to what we might want to do, might want to buy, might prefer to look at, etc. All of the information is accessible uh, to the NSA that can do very similar things and uh, and that can kind of help others decide to feed us content that could push us in certain directions. So, you know, the, there's a new center for global engagement that's part of the State Department. It was just it was just organized maybe maybe in March, uh, two thousand sixteen or April two thousand sixteen, and what it's about is this seems very important. It's an important responsibility. It's um it's to 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 identify youth who might be vulnerable to radicalization, um, and then to target third enriched third party content to them so as to prevent them from being radicalized. Now, of course, this is a very different dimension. It's a much more political dimension than the advertising, but it's very similar. It operates in the same way. Actually, you know, the State Department is using as its model Amazon and the recommendations from Amazon. But the idea here is, and it, the idea here is to, is to feed information to identified individuals, identified through all of their digital traces in this way, to work with third parties who provide this content. Um, so these might be uh, moderate imams elsewhere abroad or in this country to help them make better content because we learn through these processes, through these digital processes, that, for instance, if you add a, an image to a tweet, um, it's more likely to be viewed and clicked on, right? So, so we know how to enhance this and so the State Department or the center here will provide funding and and consulting to enhance the material to make it more um, likely to for the targets to click on it etc and then target it to uh, individuals uh, without of course putting the brand name of the United States on it so that it seems as if it's pure so so that it is in effect no different than you know the Amazon recommend it's no different than when you buy a book uh, on Amazon and they and they recommend 10 others to you um, this stuff will be coming at you if you're an I you know identified as being vulnerable to radicalization in this way I mean, I can go on and on, but what it reflects and reflects, I think, is a completely different sphere of the way in which power circulates. We've always lived in a world where there have been other interests that we may not know about that are 
playing a role in the environments or the structures where we are making a choice? Are there just right. more of these today because right. there's more distractions and the frequency with which they come is easier and there are simply more digital products? Is that right. what it's about? <laughs> So, and you're right to this cautionary note that, you know, a lot of this existed before, um, both in terms of the way in which there were other interests at play or the way in which functional equivalents of the NSA would try and get information about us, etc. So the question is, how has it changed and whether the change is simply a small technological step or a radical transformation of, as I'm trying to suggest, a kind of a radical transformation of the way in which power circulates in society today. And and I think it's the latter, in part because these media, these mediums, these, these virtual spaces, we are constantly on them. So that changes our relationship to space and time and our exposure to others and to others' interests. So tragically, on Thursday night, I went to a a reunion of all of the clerks who had clerked for the federal judge I'd clerked for, you know, 30 years ago or whatever. Um, It was his 40th year anniversary, and they were talking about when he took the bench in 76 and what chambers were like. There was no fax, uh, landlines, only landlines. <laughs> no, uh, there were typewriters. No, obviously no computers, uh, no cell phones, no nothing. And I was just thinking about the way in which chambers, uh, the judges' chambers, were, were structured and spatially and temporally differently uh, than they are today. Now, and this would apply, of course, to all of our offices and, and homes and um, workspaces, workstations, etc. There was a certain way in which the analog created privacy spaces or more private spaces or more isolated spaces than we could even imagine today. These would be spaces, and and, and, uh, and when I got to Chambers, there was actually a computer there, but um, <laughs> but still landlines and uh, probably faxes. But in any event, those were still spaces where one attended to tasks without intrusions and without kind of stimulation, without the digital intrusions and the digital stimulations that we have today at all times, which meant, I think, that sure, there were other interests at play. And of course, in that context, we were dealing with litigation, motions, practice, litigants all had their own interests and they would send us, you know, a letter motion and we would have to deal with it but very different than um, the constant bombardment of these other interests that we get when we live today on a computer and so I spend most of my day on the computer and now it functionally doing not that different things, right? I'm writing, I'm writing books, I used to draft opinions, I'm writing books now, but but my idea is to to write content, to, to produce books and ideas, and yet I'm doing it on a computer and communicating on email and checking things on Google and looking at the card catalog online and checking for a video or whatever it is, I'm constantly interacting in spaces where other 
people, corporations are trying to feed me stuff in order for me to consume, whether whether it's to buy things online or not, or or just to consume digits, right? To to click on digits because I mean to click on an article, for instance, um, because the number of clicks is going to be remunerative for somebody else. I think that's more than just a, a slight change in the amount of kind of interaction and micro interactions uh, that affect us and that are based on clashing, colliding, sometimes uh, symbiotic interests. Um, I think that it that it well, I think it does fundamentally change the way we relate to each other and and our political condition as well. I don't want to make too much of a big deal about this, but I do think, for instance, that Donald Trump's success right now, and we'll see, so obviously this podcast is being uh, recorded, we're, we're talking right now in, you know, early May 2016, who knows what's going to happen politically in the future, but I would say that the Donald Trump phenomenon, if there is one, is related to all of this in a way. Um, and it's and it and in part it's related to the fact that social media and reality TV is changing. I think the way that people interact and the way that uh, politics are conducted. So when I talk about shifting relations of power, I mean it both at a highly theoretical level. I would argue that insofar as critical theorists have identified different forms in which power circulates in society, whether it's in the, the sovereign juridical models of the Ancien Régime or the disciplinary models of the 19th century or the biopolitical models that kind of, all of these things transcend time, but, but that were very visible in the 20th century. I think that we have entered into a different space where power circulates through our exposure of ourselves. And so at a very high theoretical level, I think there's something very interesting, important, different, and fascinating going on today. But I also want to suggest that also at the concrete, at the much more concrete uh, political level and social, familial, and relational levels, our, our lives are fundamentally changing. And I think that I think that, for instance, at the concrete political level, the Donald Trump uh, phenomenon, I think many would agree that when he threw his name in the, in the hat, um, many thought he would not last more than a month, as had been true four years ago. I think that the fact that he has done so well uh, and is now the Republican uh, nominee is an artifact of his mastery of social media, his mastery of Twitter and Facebook, etc., and also his mastery of reality TV. And, but then, but that's just the political. I think that our social relations have also changed in the way we relate to each other, the way we're able to stay in contact with friends, um, the way in which the very notion of friendship itself has changed. Um, so that I mean, it's not at all clear that our notion of friending people today has anything really to do with older notions of friendship. Um, and our notions of privacy have fundamentally changed today in important ways that, that I think at a very concrete level, you know, we can, we can take it to a very high theoretical level or we can really bring it down to, to our own micro interactions. And I think that they've changed dramatically uh, over time.
you pointed to a sentence on the final page as the most important in the book. I will quote that sentence, the emphasis on what we must do as ethical selves, each and every one of us is digital subjects with our desires and disobedience, maybe precisely what is necessary for us to begin to think of ourselves as we, yes, that we that has been haunting this book since page one. Why is this sentence such an important one? I think it's so important because it would be wrong, I think, to think of this digital age uh, through a lens of us and them, through a lens of those who surveil and those who are surveilled, um, through, through this lens of, you know, oh, there are, NSA is surveilling us, gosh, that's a that's a terrible thing you know we've got state surveillance we others need to be careful and and what i what i was trying to do in the book is make us all realize that we are part of the surveillance just as much as we are being surveilled now obviously that requires a lot of caveats because there clearly there are some people who are much more victimized by the digital age. So there, there are some women who are stalked. There are some people who are incarcerated as a result of being surveilled. Uh, so there's no doubt that there are some people who are much more uh, targeted, victimized than others. But the true, but the, but the point I'm trying to make is that many people, even those who are surveilled a lot, are also using these digital devices to, to, to follow other people, to, to kind of, in a friendly way, to stalk other people, to see what they're doing, to, you know, keep tabs, to, to find out information, to, to, to live. I mean, almost, it's almost as if to, to function fully as a social animal today, um, you have to track other people a little bit and find out what they're doing, right? Um, otherwise, frankly, you're going to be a bit of a sucker. A friend of mine uh, was throwing a, a party, used the e-invite function of some... I remember asking him at some point, I said, oh, you know, did, did, um, did so-and-so get back to you? I mean, is so-and-so coming? And uh, he was like, well, he's opened it, but he hasn't responded. You know, it's like all of a sudden you can know whether people have actually looked at the invitation and not responded. And and maybe it's helpful to have that information in life. Um, it's as if there's a lot of information now that's available that can help you negotiate friendships, sociality, politics, etc. And if everybody's taking advantage of that information and you're not, you, know, you might find yourself holding the short end of the stick in a lot of situations. So the point is that I don't, I don't think it makes sense to think of this new digital age in a simplistic us and them way. Also, I also because I think that that would in a way uh, de-responsibilize the surveilled and those who are more watched. I mean, they too need to realize, understand, be careful, etc. And to simply turn it into... Like, well, uh, the NSA shouldn't be doing this, or they shouldn't be doing this, or whatever. I don't think is useful. I think it's dangerous, actually. I think it's a dangerous way to engage this new uh, virtual world of ours. So that was so that was the that was the we. I think the second most important sentence. Well, there are a couple of second most important, but the one <laughs> is the one which has tried to show the different stages in thinking about how power has circulated in society. 
Um, and so here, uh, drawing on some of the work of De Boer and Foucault and Deleuze, is this idea that, you know, there was a, an architecture of power that was associated with the spectacle, um, particularly in ancient times. The spectacle as being a place where we all gather to look at, you know, one individual, a gladiator or an actor or something in some arena. And, and in part, that reflected uh, the cost of, of watching, um, right? It was expensive to watch, so we all had to gather together to, to do that. And that architectural model to, the, to another architectural model, which is the panoptic architectural model, in which, which is a complete inversion of the spectacle, as, as Bentham, as uh, Nicholas Julius in the 19th century, as Foucault suggested, right? the spectacle gets inverted into uh, the panopticon, where one person watches everybody uh, kind of around them. So instead of everybody everybody getting together to watch one person, it's one person who has complete architectural access to everyone in the panoptic prison. Two Deleuzean societies of control, um, where control is being exercised in particular ways, to today, which I would call the expository society, uh, which incidentally would have been my title for the book if... <laughs> If, uh, if, if we were no longer in the expository society or, or maybe if we were in some earlier age where, where authors are allowed to give titles to their books. But, but it's that. It's kind of the architectural shift from, from the spectacle in the arena to the panopticon to societies of control to uh, the expository society. I think that's probably one of the most important other sentences in the book because it really shows the way in which I think there has been a fundamental shift uh, in the way uh, the power circulates. But the the importance of the individual in the digital age, the elevation of the individual in the current sort of political economic environment, to me that was something that came through very strongly in the book. So, for example, uh, I mean, just thinking what we are doing is we're telling our own stories with a digital app where our real-time you know, autobiographers for ourselves doing the same thing on social media or sort of there's an entrepreneurial culture which is obviously very individual about you know, trying to promote whatever for our businesses or our brands the emphasis on the individual exposition the individual in the expository society seems to me something that is a feature that is strengthened in the digital age. The point I would want to make is that, and it, it's related, I think, to this chapter I have on what I call the doppelganger logic of the digital age. Um, what I try to argue in that chapter is that there's been a transformation in the way in which we try to predict and shape individuals. And in that transformation, what you're raising here with your question is this interesting fact that it has gone towards a much more individualized notion of the individual, one in which we're trying to identify exactly, match one individual to another so that we can use one individual's behavior to then predict the others. And that's, of course, the basis of the recommend logics uh, that are going on today. Um, this idea that we'll, we'll try and find the person who has watched, you know, the last 10 same movies on Netflix to figure out from their 11th movie 
what you're going to want to watch, right? Now, and that is much more individualized as you, as you suggested. And so the, the individual plays a much bigger role there. But, but I would be cautious though about kind of naturalizing that notion of the individual there because, uh, I'm concerned to what extent that notion itself is the product of these, uh, techniques of prediction and shaping and targeting. Not not so much the techniques, but I I think about the tools. Okay. The availability. So, for example, now anybody can be a podcaster, or software that allows you to run a regression analysis is doesn't cost thousands and thousands of dollars, or so there's a free version, or you can use these tools, digital tools, um, yourself. Right. And what that means at a very concrete level is now you don't need to be a large organization that has the computing power to be able to put together a digital product or you can be an individual and it empowers you as an individual to act regardless of whether that's your true self or your true individual sort of putting aside the political social piece, the tools empower individual action in a way that previously was not possible. Right. So it's not just that yeah. we're encouraging people to express themselves and, you know, we're developing increasingly personalized advertising for them. We're also giving them tools that at a fundamental level make more sense to be used by an individual. And so this, I take it, would be another way in which the new digital age is shifting relations of power, right? It's not as if the evaluation and assessment of this of this new space that we live in i mean we need to be cautious let's say we need to be cautious not to inflect too much of our analysis with a kind of a normative assessment of whether it's better or worse or whether we've just gone over the edge whether you know whether we're now you know awaiting the apocalypse or whatnot and what you're suggesting i think is right is that um this has transformed somewhat the ability of single situated persons and an individual to do certain things, to act in certain ways, to, to, um, uh, to intervene politically, say. Um, it has also changed the way groups can interact to try and achieve uh, certain things. Um, and, if you look at some of the more recent social movements like the Black Lives Matters movement and other hashtag movements, I think you'll see that, yeah, that has, that has affected uh, social movements and the way in which people engage politics, right? But it also allows you to be... Completely so, followed and tracked at yes, the same yes, time, it, right? It, that's, right? I think, there's right. That, that, I think that's right. a little bit of what maybe I'm getting at with the, the cycle mm-hmm. of... Mm-hmm where it, it facilitates more individual actions that people can take that can also be you know, captured and, right. and fed back to them or fed back to somebody else or you know, right. creating new choices. But, right. but that piece, sort of, there are simply just more individual acts that put together the, you refer to it as a digital mesh or whatnot, that, that right. would not have existed before. Yeah. Because the tools are empowering. Them. Because of the tools, yes. And so we are able to present ourselves and reach an audience that is unimaginable, that was unimaginable. I mean, when you just think of something like these meme phenomena, 
like the most recent one was the Dam Daniel phenomena, right? Where all of a sudden, in a matter of weeks, this homemade 30-second clip by Daniel's friend yeah. gets reaches 45 million people, yeah. right? I mean, that's, that's, there's an unprecedented proliferation there, and it's, yeah, that's simply, that's simply unimaginable. Phenomenon itself, I think, is really a rich phenomenon to analyze through the lens of, of these questions of, of the way in which power circulates. In part because that video, for instance, which I would argue has embedded in it a whole politics and a whole political economy and a whole subtle, not on its face, consumerism, gets to 45 million people um, and it gets to a certain extent, and it gets under your skin without you even thinking for a moment as to what are those political economies and interests, etc. Right? That's a perfect illustration, I think, of, of how it is that this new virtual age can go about shaping us in ways that, and with interests that we aren't fully cognizant of or haven't spent the time thinking about or just, or just don't have the time to think about because, because there's another video that we want to watch. For, for listeners who don't Google Dam Daniel, essentially he's wearing new shoes every day and every time he wears new shoes, somebody goes, damn, Daniel. So that's sort of just right. a little bit of context for this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> in the final uh, part of the conversation, I'd, I'd like to shift to the final section of the book titled uh, Digital Disobedience. Uh, it's the shortest of the sections. Uh, I think for somebody who's looking for some kind of guide to digital disobedience, it's not there. I don't think that was ever right. the intent or the right. point. Right. Um, what I wanted to get at, though, was, was unless I missed this, I was trying to find sort of just a definition of digital disobedience. And I think the closest that you have is a situated form of disobedience, one that's particularly appropriate as a type of resistance to democratic despotism, even though it may not necessarily be adequate to leaderful authoritarianism. I think that's a description of what sort of it manifests itself as. But I was sort of, I, I wanted to ask you. You want a clearer definition? Yeah, I want a clearer definition. What are the characteristics of digital yeah, disobedience? Yeah. yeah, in the final section, I didn't, I, you know, I don't want this book to be a kind of a self-help manual or, a, you know, or, or even a manual of any kind. And I've learned with, with some early books that the part of the book that I was always most disappointed with uh, at the end of the day when it was all said and done was the kind of final chapters that did some kind of policy analysis or, you know, recommendation or something or, you know, so, so I wanted to avoid that, but, but give some sense of the varied ways in which individuals are resisting the digital age, because there's such a wide variety. I mean, whether it's, you know, people who are trying to encrypt and protect themselves or other people who are going with a, you know, full exposure or people who are trying to like expose the others or, I mean, you know, there's a, there's just a wide variety. So I wanted to at least put that on the table to suggest that there are all these different ways of resisting, which of course raises the question then of what is it that digital resistance or digital disobedience is. And, and in part, I had spent a lot of time in, in my writings about Occupy develop a concept of political disobedience um, that I felt uh, was important and ties in somehow. So I wanted to distinguish digital disobedience from 
political disobedience. Um, as you can tell, I'm in New York City, um, so <laughs> you can never escape the sirens. So political disobedience first, I viewed as something different than civil disobedience, which we tend to understand pretty well. But political disobedience is not acknowledging the legitimacy of the system, of the political system, and not being willing to accept the punishment that the system meets out, which to a certain extent, I think civil disobedience requires that. You have to be willing to be punished because you are being civilly disobedient. Political disobedience is something about the fact that you aren't willing to accept the legitimacy of the system and you're trying to uh, resist politically through innovative means um, that aren't the classical political means. You're not joining a political party. You're not, um, you're having a leaderless resistance. That then brings us to the digital uh, disobedience. I would define digital disobedience as the desire to swim against the digital stream in such a way as to acquire the energy of that digital stream to use that to resist it, to foil it, to, to complicate it, so that interests are exposed or so that we, we start to try and spend more time figuring out what it is that's going on, who it is that's recommending, how we are trying to be shaped. But at the same time, I didn't want to specifically tell anyone what they should be doing. This would not just extend to individuals. It could extend, or could it extend to people or organizations that, just go back earlier, you sort of called the them. Right. When a government is more transparent about the data that it puts out, a lot of the open governor, open gov initiatives. Right. right. Those, right. those are not just an individual saying, I'm going to swim against the digital stream. That is a them actor just turning over the digital data to be used in any kind of way. You list that example in the digital disobedience chapter. Is it just about individuals or is there something Mm. more? So it is heavily focused on kind of ethical behavior or our ethical selves, which our ethical selves are not purely individual since they're relational familial, political, social, etc. selves. But there is a, a dimension of the ethical self that is kind of closely associated, a strong dimension of the ethical self that is closely associated with with the individual in that sense. I'm, I'm trying to suggest that this responsibility or I don't want to call it a duty, but that there is this notion that we as ethical selves should be thinking about these things and, and, and trying to, to challenge them. Now, I think that that would lead ultimately to possibly group interventions. In other words, an open data government program, you know, someone's got to be behind it. It's not going to just kind of it's not the computer itself. I mean, you know, artificial intelligence might in the future kind of come up and probably already has. But I mean, you know, I, you know, there's got to be somebody who's kind of pushing for the open data policy or something. And, and there again, it would, so, so I'm more interested in the ethical 
conundrum of the ethical subject, coming up with that as a way to, to, to change the way things are done in our digital age. I think it was Deleuze and Guattari who said that, um, you know, revolutions aren't uh, made out of duty, but they're made out of desire. And, and that's an insight that I think is, is one of the most challenging things to us because it's desire, I would argue, that has brought us to the condition that we're in in the digital age. And it's that desire question that presents for us the greatest challenge to, to somehow resist because so much of our desire is, is fueling uh, these digital streams. And so I think part of the message I'm trying to make about digital disobedience, about the ethical subject, is that what the ethical subject must do now, I think, is somehow grapple with and ambiguate, maybe turn somewhat, the desire that is making us spend so much time uh, on our iPhones and, and internets and, and social media.